chapter 6. want to continue our study in John. It's been a while since we've been here, but we're back. And you know John's purpose in writing this, this gospel. He told us at the near the end of the gospel of John that all the miracles that Jesus did, all the signs and wonders were written down, not all of them, but most of them, or some of them, so that those who see the miracles or read about the miracles can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have life through his name. So this is the great purpose of John's writing under the, the movement of the Holy Spirit that people would see Christ for who he really is. You know, there, there are imaginary Christ out there. People have just imagined who Christ is. They just feel it. They've learned from other people. They've, it's been passed down. They've seen pictures of him. They've heard uh, unbiblical stories about him. That kind of Christ can't save. But the Christ John is writing about, he saves. So you have to have the right understanding of who Jesus is. That's what John gives us. Our Lord Jesus Christ began his ministry at age 30, and wherever he went, he drew enormous crowds. They were all about following Jesus. They swarmed from everywhere in Israel to see this man who worked miracles, who healed people and fed people. And sadly, most of them who followed Jesus around were superficial believers. They were even called disciples, but superficial disciples. Never really had a heart for Jesus. They just wanted Jesus to keep meeting their temporal needs. Keep giving me food. I like that. We've got somebody here that can just keep making food for thousands of people. And Jesus demonstrated his deity and repeatedly preached that he was the son of God but the people just saw Jesus as a, a teacher who could do miracles. He was the miracle man. To them, he was just the son of Joseph and Mary, but he had power from God to do miracles. They never saw him as a savior who came to die for sinners. The Messiah was there to save from sin, but they only wanted a Messiah who could meet their temporal needs they never saw that he came to help their dying souls. Never saw it. Blinded. Blinded. That's how we all start life. So the Apostle John's going to show us that Jesus is the bread of life, and whoever believes in him shall never die. Live forever. Does that sound good? Live forever. Amen. Well, we learned last time we were in the Gospel of John that Jesus had fed 5,000 men. That didn't include the, the women and children. Probably closer to 20,000 people he fed with just five little loaves of bread and two fish. Incredible miracle. 
he was so incredible that they tried to make him king. This feeding took place near Bethsaida on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where they tried to make him king, and Jesus said no. He didn't want any part of that. His father would make him king, but not people, because they wanted the wrong kind of king for the wrong reasons. He said no. So he went up to a mountain, got away from the people, and he sent his disciples away in a boat so they wouldn't be infected with that unbiblical thinking about who Jesus is. And so they got in a boat and headed for Capernaum on the west side of the lake. So they were fed over here on the east side, and they headed for the west side to, to Capernaum, and they got in their boat, and they ran into a big storm. They couldn't make progress. As hard as they rode, they couldn't make any progress in their boat. And here comes Jesus walking on the water right through the storm. Could not hinder his progress because he's God. Got in the boat, and immediately the boat was in Capernaum. Verse 21 of John 6, you see that. They willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they went. Didn't have to row. Jesus said, boat, go over there. Boom. That's the power of God. Only he can do that. So we pick up John's account in verse 22. The day following, when the people who stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one into which his disciples entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples went away alone. The large crowd that had been fed by Jesus, they spent the night in Bethsaida. And when they got up in the morning, they noticed Jesus was not there. And probably their first thought was, who's going to make breakfast for us? Because that's what Jesus was good for in their minds, making food. They knew the disciples left in a boat without Jesus, and there were no other, no other boats around. So they didn't know where Jesus was. They didn't know that he had walked on water to be with his disciples in the boat. I mean, the boat was shot right over to Capernaum. So we read in verse 23, Nevertheless, there came other boats from Tiberias, near to the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. Boats from Tiberias on the western shore came to Bethsaida. So they crossed from the west over to the east, where the 5,000 were fed. And the Bible doesn't tell us why they came there. It's possible that they heard that Jesus had done this great miracle and they wanted to come and investigate for themselves and see this Jesus. Or maybe they just came because the people over there needed a ride back to the, the west side. Verse 24 tells us, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, he wasn't in Bethsaida anymore, neither were his disciples, they took the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So they couldn't find Jesus in Bethsaida. They got in the boats, went to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. Wouldn't it be wonderful if they were seeking Jesus to worship him? 
and to adore him and to honor him. But we'll see, that's, that's not what they had in mind. So they ask him in verse 25, after they found him on the other side of the sea, they found him in Capernaum, they, they said unto him, Rabbi, when did you come here? He doesn't answer them. This is, this is a pattern that Jesus shows us quite a bit. Somebody asks a question or even thinks about a question. He doesn't answer it. He gets right to the important matters, and that is their spiritual needs. He doesn't care much about filling their bellies again. He knows their hearts need to be changed. He knows they need spiritual help. So he tells them, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. When, when you see truly, truly in the scriptures, it's, it's time to really pay close attention because there's a critical truth, truth that Jesus is about to tell them. And what he tells them here is he exposes their wrong views of him. They see Jesus as a miracle worker who can heal and make bread appear for thousands of people. And that's all they wanted. They, they just wanted food. It wasn't even the miracles that they were that interested in. They just wanted food. They missed the true meaning of miracles. Miracles are signs. And they point to Jesus' deity. Over and over again, we'll see throughout the Gospel of John, he does miracle after miracle. And they're all big signs that point to his deity, that he is God. They didn't get it. Miracles were like signposts. And as he did a miracle, it was supposed to be a big signpost saying, this man is God, people. Because only God can do these things. Only God can feed thousands of people from five little loaves. They didn't even need the loaves. They couldn't see it. The miracles didn't matter much to them. They just wanted more food. Isn't that like most people? No real concern for their souls. That's where people are today. Don't really concern themselves with the eternal position of their souls, where they are spiritually. Their focus is on the here and now. That's where most people are. Just want to get through the day, just want to survive, make sure I got money, got food, things I want. They have their security in temporal things. Christians can be that way too. They can put their, their hope in things. And they want to make more money and get more things because they feel secure with things. But listen, if you if you could get all the material things that you ever even dreamed of, houses and cars and a credit card that you could use any time, never have to pay it off, and anything you wanted, you put that credit card there. You still wouldn't be secure. Because those things can perish, or you can perish and they stay. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Just things, Matthew 16. 
So that's where these people were, just wanted things, temporal things that will perish with the using or they'll perish. So he goes on in verse 27 to uh, rebuke them here lovingly. He says, labor not for the food which perishes, but for that food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. Jesus is telling them, stop working so hard for things that are temporary and will perish and can't save you, can't help you at all with your spiritual problems. Labor for the things that will last. Put your energy in things that actually matter for eternity. We have to have that mindset as well. I need to put my priorities in order. My soul, the soul of my wife, my children, people around me. Jesus will last forever. Everything else will perish. In other words, whoever partakes of Jesus will not just have a temporary filling of their stomach. They will have spiritual filling of the soul that will never end. Whoever partakes of Jesus will be filled up, and it will never, ever go away. You will have eternal life. You will never perish. Jesus will give this food, this eternal food, to the ones who desire it. You know how you like Look forward to meals. We all like to eat. Very few people look forward to having spiritual nourishment. They just think about the temporal. Just want the, the here and now fulfilled. And Jesus has the authority to give this eternal food to people. Because it says in verse 27, right at the end, the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. The Father set his seal on Jesus, meaning God has approved Jesus to do this work of giving eternal life. He is life himself, and he's been approved by the Father in heaven to give eternal life to those who are dead. God sent Jesus to earth when the time was just right, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. He came at just the right time to live a perfect, sinless life and to die for the sins of his people. Remember what the angel told Joseph? When Joseph was getting ready to divorce his wife, she was pregnant and he didn't have anything to do with it. And the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus and he shall save his people from what? Their sins. He came for that very purpose. God approved him of that, put his seal on him, said, this is my son. He's God. He's equal to me. He's coming down to save his people from their sins. Jesus is telling this crowd to partake of this, this divine food. It's bread from heaven. And if they partake of it, they will live forever. Eternal life. That's what eternal life is. The word eternal means always, never-ending, forever. And what Jesus offers, what he's offering to the people, telling them to not labor for things that perish, but labor, labor for that which lasts forever. He's offering 
something that cannot be earned. Eternal life is free, cannot be earned. If someone invites you for dinner and puts food out for you, and if you're hungry, you just eat that food. You don't say, what can I pay you for this? Or can I sweep your floor and earn some merit for this food? No. The people who have you over, they love you, and they just give you food. Free gift. That's what Jesus is saying. It's free. Whoever is hungry for eternal life, whoever wants to have forgiveness of sins, whoever wants to go to heaven, how many want to, don't raise your hand, how many want to go to heaven when they die? Yeah. Did you ever run into anybody that wanted to go to hell? I have. They think they're going to party down there, but most people who have any idea about what heaven is like and hell is like from Scripture, they want to go to heaven. Jesus says, if you want forgiveness of sin, you want to be accepted by God, my Father, come to me and partake of me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. He'll go on to say later on. In other words, I am the only hope you have. Partake of me, spiritually speaking. Partake of me. Believe on me. And you will live forever. Listen, there's no better deal in the whole universe than when God says, if you come to Jesus and believe on him, you will go to heaven. Nobody can take it away from you. Nobody can interfere with that. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's forever. You're secured. You're safe. Nobody can take away your salvation. Verse 28, here's what the crowd says in response to this great offer of eternal life. They said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? So the the Jewish people thought they had to do something to get this eternal life, some kind of work. That's what they asked him. That's the way the Jews thought back in in the days when Jesus walked on the earth. In fact, they still think that way. They always thought that they had to do some religious activity in order to earn God's favor. They knew they were children of Abraham, and they knew that that was positive. They tried to keep the law of Moses, and they felt pretty good about that because it was works-based. But they always thought they always had to keep doing something to make God happy with them, earn salvation. They were never taught that salvation is by grace through faith, not works. So their hope of righteousness that was taught to them by the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, this is what they taught these people. This is all they knew. You have to do, you have to tithe. And you have to do this sacrifice. And you can't walk too many steps on the Sabbath. You have to keep these rules. And if you do all these things, then you can enter the kingdom of God. This is what they were taught. So this is why they think this way. They're asking Jesus, what do we have to do? What kind of works do we have to do to get into the kingdom? But it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to... To his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. 
It's not by any works we can do. So children and adults, if you want to go to heaven, trying to be a nice person and a good person will not get you there. It's great to be nice to people. It's great to be, more, it's great to be moral and have good, high biblical values in your life. That's never enough. Because to earn God's favor, you would have to keep God's laws all the time without breaking one of them ever in your whole lifetime. So if you ever said a wrong word or had a wrong look or just had a wrong motive, you're excluded from heaven unless you believe in Jesus. That's depressing, isn't it? Because you look at yourself honestly and you say, there's no way my works could be affected. I have broken so many laws so many days in a row. But Jesus kept all the laws. And whoever believes in him believes in one who was accepted based on his works. Works you couldn't do, Jesus did. And by faith in him, God accepts you just for that reason. Well, Jesus tells them in verse 29, he said to them, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he hath sent. He says, yes, salvation is a work, but not the work of sinners. You can't do it. It's the work of God. God must work in the heart to cause salvation to take place. This is the sovereign work of God. And he's the only one that can bring salvation to a lost sinner. So we've got two things going on. You always see this in the scripture. We've got God's sovereignty over everything, including salvation. And then we've got man's responsibility. He is to do certain things. To come, to believe, to deny himself, to say no to sin, all these things. And you say, well, how can God do this in somebody's He's the only one that can save, but on the other hand, he's telling everybody to come and be saved. How does that work out? Well, I don't know. So you tell me, if you figure it out, you come and tell me two truths that run parallel. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We don't know where they meet, because they never meet in our mind, but in God's mind, they're all easily understood. It is what the Bible says, and that's if you approach the Bible that way, where whatever God says, Gary prayed this this morning, I, I don't understand it all, but he said it, so I believe it. God is the only one who can change the heart. The heart that we're born with, the heart we're conceived with before we're even born, is hard as a rock. And it's, it's dead set against doing what God says and only set on doing what the flesh wants. The nature is evil. It's sinful. It just wants to get its own way and satisfy its own lust. And you can't change it on yourself. You can be as nice as you want and uh, try not to do bad things and think bad thoughts, but you have an evil nature and a hard heart. You're at enmity with God. You oppose God. You can dress it up and put lipstick on a pig and do all that. It doesn't change anything. God must change the hard heart and give you a heart that is soft and pliable 
and loves his laws and loves him. So it's not a work that sinners can do to circumcise their own hearts and get the flesh out of there. God must circumcise that heart by his mighty power. How does he do that? He just sends the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity just sends the Holy Spirit to take that heart of of rock out, hard heart, and put a heart of flesh in. It's a heart transplant. The Holy Spirit does. It's called regeneration. And as he does that heart transplant, he gives you faith to believe. That's where faith comes from. He gives you faith to believe. And your faith will have as its only object the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will believe in Jesus, his person, his work, everything about Jesus that the Bible proclaims. Everything Jesus said about himself, everything the apostles said about him, you will believe it. And all his work, you will believe that. Because the faith God gives is saving faith. He doesn't give just an intellectual faith where you believe the facts, but nothing changes in your life. Saving faith, you believe the facts, and it changes your life. You go from death to life. So believing or faith is not a work by the sinner, okay? So make sure we understand that faith is not a work. It's a response to the work of God in the heart. He gives you faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you all know that. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. God must give it. God's sovereign in salvation. The faith God gives is saving faith. It's not an intellectual or academic faith. It's believing what God said in his word. Number one, it's believing everything God said in his word. That's what faith is, taking God at his word and then embracing it personally. So it's not good enough to say, well, I believe Jesus died for sinners in some general way. That's a true statement. But saving faith will have you say, I believe Jesus died for me. Not just other people, for me. I, I know it. I, I accept that. I believe it. I embrace it. And then the last part is living out that faith by living according to what God teaches. You believe what he says. You embrace it as it's said for you personally. And then you begin to live it out for the new creation that you are in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's God's work. Man can't do that work. That's God's work in the heart. You say, well, is that fair? He only works in certain hearts. Yeah, he works in the hearts of his elect. What isn't fair is that he chose anybody, that Jesus had to suffer for any of us. That's not fair. It's more than fair that if God wanted to choose one or billions, he could do that because nobody deserved his love and his grace. Okay, here they come again. This crowd that just wants to be fed. Verse 30. They said, therefore, unto him, What sign do you show us then? 
that we may see and believe you. What work do you do? So here's, here's the sad response from a group that has seen the miracles that God did. They've heard the great teaching of God, who is Jesus as God. They witnessed his power to multiply the loaves for 20,000 people. They, just, they were the ones that were fed all this bread and the fishes. They were there. They experienced it. You've heard people say, well, if I, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just see God come down and do a miracle, if I could just see something, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. These people, they were there. They watched Jesus do the miracle. They heard the very words of truth come out of his mouth. They didn't believe. They're looking for another miracle to prove it. This is how unbelievers respond oftentimes. Show me more. I know you've already shown me a bunch of stuff, but show me, show me one more thing that you can do. That's what they're asking. That's the response of an unbelieving heart. Unbelievers oftentimes want more proof. Never satisfied with the truth you just shared with them, now they want more truth. Well, what about this? What about that? And unbelievers will often tell you um, that they have an intellectual problem with some of the, the contradictions in the scriptures. And that's why they can't believe. These are called agnostics. Show me more. Teach, you know, show me some more proof. Explain this to me. But really, the problem is not intellectual. Because the Bible is very clear when it comes to who Jesus is, who God is, what sin is, what the plan of salvation is. It's very, very clear. The problem is the heart. It's always the heart. Not the intellect. It's the heart. It's hardened. It's darkened. Men love darkness rather than light. They, you give them the light from Scripture. These people that were standing there had light. The light of the world was standing right there in front of them, doing miracles, speaking to them. But they love darkness rather than light. So they show us one more thing, Jesus. Even the, even the mockers, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they said, let the king of Israel come down, and then we'll believe in him. You know what happened if Jesus climbed off the cross and came down and said, okay, I'm here. You believe? Mm -mm. Show us one more. Get back up on the cross. Do a couple of cartwheels, and then maybe we'll believe. The unbelieving heart is never satisfied until God works on it. And then just one truth satisfies it. Jesus died for me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. So they wanted more proof, more answers. That's unbelievers. They don't need more proof. They need God working in their hearts. Verse 31 says, Our fathers, here's, here's more of their response. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So instead of believing with Christ right in their midst, they asked for more food. They want what the ancient Israelites got from God. God supplied them with manna for 40 years while they traveled in the wilderness. That's what they wanted. Just keep giving us food. These people wanted Jesus to keep supplying food for them. 
But Jesus didn't come to be the social welfare Messiah. Remember, he refused to be their king because the kind of king they wanted was one that could just keep feeding them and protecting them from the enemies. He came to be a saving Messiah who would cure man's sin problem. Number one goal, do his father's will, and his father's will was he would save his people from their sins. He came to be a saving Messiah. So he, he tells him another critical truth. In verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Jesus corrects their wrong ideas about the bread from heaven, the manna that they used to get when Moses was there. It was not Moses who gave them the bread. It was God who gave it to them. He, he said in Exodus 16, 4, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. It was God who rained the manna down for the people to eat. Moses simply told them how God wanted it collected. That was Moses' part. Moses didn't create the bread. God created it for 40 years. And also, the manna was not the true bread from heaven. It was real food, but it was a type or a symbol of what God would provide from heaven in the future when he would send Jesus to be spiritual food for his people. Jesus was the true bread. Notice in verse 32 when he says, my father gives, my father gives you the true bread. That verb is in the present tense. It's what God is doing now as Jesus is speaking to the people, not what he did back when Moses was carrying the people through the wilderness. He said, right now, God is giving you bread. I'm the bread. God is giving you this bread right now in your midst. And it's true bread, which means it's genuine. This bread is real because it gives eternal life, not just temporal life. And it's from heaven. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave Jesus to a fallen and condemned world of sinners in his great mercy. He gave the bread of life to the world. This crowd of Jews had no idea what they were looking at. They were looking at God in the flesh. They were blinded. He was God in the flesh who left the glories of heaven to save sinners, and all they wanted was more food. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. So Jesus makes it clear that he is the bread of God that came down from heaven to earth to give life not just to the Jews, but to anyone who wants eternal life. That's why he said he came down to give life to the world. 
In other words, not just Jews, but the Gentiles also. The world of humanity, taken as a group, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews didn't believe that. But to understand the Jewish mentality, they believed that God only loved Jews and hated the Gentiles. But Jesus told them he came for anyone in the world, Jew or Gentile, who believes on him. In verse 34, they're still blind. They said unto him, Lord, evermore, or always, give us this bread. They're clueless. All they want is physical bread. This is the mark of superficial faith. Anybody can believe like this. I believe Jesus is right here. He's making bread. But I don't believe the Jesus of the Bible because he does more than give bread. Superficial faith is common in the churches today. Professing churches. Many believe Jesus is here primarily to meet their temporal needs. Like they have financial problems, Jesus will help me. Uh, marriage problems, family problems, all these temporal problems. As a Jesus, is, he's, like, he's like a good luck charm. You know, he just comes along and, or a genie. He just gives you what, what you need to fix your problems. And Jesus does solve our temporal problems. He can solve any problem. He's God. But his primary goal for us is not our happiness, but our holiness. You may have heard that before, but, but let that sink deep into your heart because this is what a lot of people who profess Christ really believe. Jesus came to make me happy. Like, that's their big thing. You know, I am supposed to be comfortable and happy and not have a lot of problems. That is not why Jesus came. He came to make us holy, to save us, to make us holy. And if if you're holy and you love the holiness Jesus gives you and you, you strive and pursue holiness, you, you may not have understood this, but that will make you happier than anything else in the world. Because that's walking with the Lord. That's walking in the Spirit. But most people just want everything fixed so they don't have any more problems, not concerned about their spiritual welfare. So Jesus deals with our spiritual problems and our spiritual needs above everything else. The unsaved people do not understand that because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he understand them because they're spiritually discerned. They're spiritually appraised. That's what these people were. They were natural people. They didn't understand the truth God was imparting to them. All they understood was, we like you to keep making food for us. These Jews who stand in the presence of God are blind to their spiritual needs. Like most people, all they ask for is more bread to fill their bellies. Instead of asking Jesus to save them from eternal loss and from the wrath of God, they just ask for more food. So Jesus is going to make it really clear in verse 35, and we'll close on this. 
Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So he makes it clear. It was already clear for, from our point of view, but he's, he's just emphasizing this again. He is the bread of life. He is the source of eternal life. You people have no other options except me. Jesus is not literally bread. I think we all understand that. This is a metaphor. Metaphor is, is a figure of speech that uh, shows a resemblance between two things. Between Jesus and real bread, he is like bread in that he nourishes. Whoever comes to him and believes will never hunger, never have any further spiritual hunger or thirst. That hunger or thirst is a reference to spiritual satisfaction, which means salvation. If you're not saved, you will not have spiritual satisfaction. If you're saved, you will have spiritual satisfaction because you will, you will feast on Jesus. You will drink from the fountain of life. And he will be your greatest satisfaction. Nothing else will please you more than Jesus. But what happens, is, even with Christians, they get caught up in so many other things. They find, they're trying to find their happiness in other things. And it's always, ultimately, disappointing. Have you found that out? When you put your emphasis on, I want to be happy by doing this, this, and this, and then you try to do it, and there's all kinds of frustrations and failures and disappointments, but not so with Jesus. When you pursue him and you feast on him and you walk with him and you study him and you just think about him and meditate on him, now you have joy. And even when disappointments come, you're so joined up with Jesus that they just bounce off you like nothing happened. Jesus told the people in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, 6. You want to be blessed? Hunger and thirst for Jesus, who is our righteousness. And you'll be filled up to the fullness of God. The sinner's responsibility is clearly stated right here in verse 35. Come, and believe. Jesus said, he that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Responsibility of the sinner, come and believe. Coming to Christ. What does that mean? Listen carefully. When you come to Christ, you forsake all other means of salvation. Whatever you dreamed of in your little mind that God would be pleased with, get rid of all those notions. All your works, all your Bible reading, going to church, none of that can save. They're all good things, but they cannot save. You say a little prayer at night, God, thank you for my parents, thank you for food, thank you, good night. And in your mind you say, you know, because I thank God for things and because I prayed for my parents and because I'm a thankful person, I'm going to go to heaven. Banish that notion. It doesn't help. 
When you come to Jesus, you come forsaking all other ideas you had about salvation other than God's idea. That if I come believing in Jesus, he will save me. That's it. I don't bring anything else except my sin to him. I trust in him as my Lord and my Savior. He will control my life. He will show me what to do through his word. I'm coming empty-handed. All I can bring to Jesus is my sinful life. Not my good works. Not my silly notions. That's what it means to come to Jesus. Believing in Jesus, we talked about this, means taking him at his word, embracing everything he says in his word, the Bible, and living out that life. So the question today, have you come to Jesus and believed? Have you come, set aside all other notions of what it means to be saved and just believe what Jesus said? Come to me, you'll never hunger. Believe on me, you shall never thirst. Have you believed on Jesus? Have you come to him? I want you to think seriously about this. Have you literally come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I am so sinful. I am such a wicked, vile, offensive person to you. you you're holy. Your eyes can't behold this evil that I am, but you promised that if I believe that you accomplish redemption for me, you will look upon me with favor. Have you done that? Have you come to Jesus and confessed that you don't deserve anything but hell right now. You should drop right into hell right now. All of us. And have you believed that he is the only one that can help you go to heaven? Have you done that? If not, do so right now. While there's time, we are not promised another day on this earth. Come now, believe now. Don't hope in things that perish. Don't put your emphasis on things that are going to perish and go away and disappoint you. Hope in Christ. He will never disappoint you. Whoever comes to Jesus, even right now, where you're sitting, in your heart, whoever comes to him, he will not say, no, you're too bad. No, you're too late. No, you know, you're, I just can't take people. He'll never say that. You come to him. Believe on him. He will not cast you away. He'll receive you. And you will go to heaven when you die. Isn't that a blessed truth? Amen. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer.